Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. A couple weeks ago, Revolution had their annual get-together in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And since this is our home turf, uh, we decided that we were going to do something a little special as part of this event. We're not real Revolution kind of people. I mean, I, I went through their agenda, talked to some of the people that attend the event. A lot of centralization talk, a lot of top-down, kind of orderly but dumb kind of thing. A lot of notion that if we just got more money in D.C. for transportation that we could fix all these problems and have great transit everywhere. And, of course, we know that that's a ridiculous notion on many, many levels. But we believe in transit, and we think transit is a really important part of not only the Strong Towns conversation, but about the future of the United States, our cities, their productivity, Transit is one of the highest returning investments we can make when we make it in the right way. One of the things that we wanted to do was get together a panel of people that we find to be really thoughtful, really intelligent, and have some very smart insights when it comes to doing transit in a strong town's way and just have their voices be heard. So we set up one night across the street from the revolution event, a little panel there's four of us there, plus Jim Kuman, our executive director. You're going to hear that now. It was fairly well attended. We had quite a few people show up. But even more than that, I think the people who showed up said, wow, this should have really been part of the main event. This should really have been part of the conversation going on there. This adds a lot of depth that we were looking for. And so for those of you that have wanted to hear more for us on transit, Here's a, a really good conversation we had around revolution with some people that I find to be very informed and very inspiring when it comes to the issue of transit. Enjoy and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Okay, welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us. Yes, you all can move to the front if you like, because I'm sure what's going to happen is people are going to wander their way back from dinner, because at 5 o'clock I saw lots of people streaming out to the restaurants. But luckily, we're using microphones to record this session, so I bet more people will hear by podcast. But nonetheless, that is mostly because we have this panel assembled here for Revolution. How do you actually say that? Revolution. Revolution. It's a play on words. <laughs> it's a word on play. All right, we'll start for real now. Uh, my name is Jim Kuman. I'm the executive director of Strong Towns. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization based here in Minnesota, but working nationally to help our cities and towns have a more financially resilient future. Uh, and that is mostly through our built environment, our, our land use, economic development, and transportation policy. So we are happy to host a session here on this great public space, the Piazza on the Mall, as it's called here. We are working on a little project that we'll introduce here in a second at Strong Towns. And uh, this panel is a part of furthering that discussion and uh, hopefully gaining some feedback from uh, those of you who think about transit far too often in your free time throughout the day and year. 
And uh, we are going to sort of dive into some of these issues tonight that kind of look at the bigger picture underpinnings of what we're doing with transit beyond just the great stuff we're talking about in the sessions during the conference, but also to perhaps uh, pick away at uh, some broader issues that aren't being discussed outside of that realm. So we are putting together a uh, report that's called uh, Transportation in the Next American City. Chuck will talk a little bit more about that in a second. A great portion of that is going to be talking about transit and uh, in our productive places uh, where transit could be improved. And so um, we are hoping to uh, have a pre-release of that document uh, before we kind of put it out to the greater wide world. And so if you sign up here, uh, we can uh, send that out to you as we uh, seek to get lots of feedback from lots of different folks before uh, putting it out there for the world to see. Thanks for coming and uh, spread the word. Uh, we will have this uh, on our website, strongtowns.org. Um, you can go to podcast and uh, it'll probably be up here in the next couple weeks. So tonight I have with me, and I will let them introduce themselves. My name's Yona Freemark. I'm a city planner uh, who likes writing about transportation. I also work for an organization called Metropolitan Planning Council in Chicago. Uh, Christoph Spieler. Um, I am an urban planner engineer, um, but I'm here because I am the first ever Houston Metro board member uh, appointed as a result of blogging. Um, <laughs> and Seriously? Uh, absolutely true. And also, um, live in Houston um, with a 10-block commute that I get to ride a light rail line to do. I didn't know that was possible. Actually, maybe I did, but... Uh, I'm Jeff Wood. Uh, I run a, a site called The Overhead Wire and a Twitter account called The Overhead Wire, and, and uh, I'm good friends with all these folks because of a number of different things like CNU and, and blogging itself. That, that's how I met Christoph, and that's how I met Yona. So uh, we talk a lot about transit and, and uh, also have a podcast on Streets Blog. Uh, as well, so uh, you might have heard that, or I don't know. you introduce yourself, and then I saw oh the overhead wire. Oh, I get it. <laughs> it's funny how we know each other by those names, right? My name's Chuck Marone. I work for Jim at Strong Towns, and uh, thanks for being here. So, Chuck, you can keep the mic. We're going to start with you. So, the format for tonight is we're going to give a question to each of our panelists, let them rant for a while, uh, and then we'll let the other panelists agree or disagree, uh, and then we'll move along and see where this leads us. So, we'll have Chuck start off. Um, so, at Strong Towns, like I said, we talk about the financial aspects of our city, and uh, we've been working on a report that is getting very close to being done, uh, which basically talks about why we keep running out of money for transportation projects in this country. And uh, I want to, Chuck to sort of talk a little bit about um, the larger picture of transportation, not just transit, but what is a, a starting point that we need to consider uh, for a different conversation, because uh, obviously if we keep going the way we're going, we're not going to have money really for anything. Yeah, and kind of the basis for our whole conversation at Strong Towns is to ask that question. We're a wealthy country. We've had decades of growth. Why don't we have any money to do just simple, simple things? And one of the things that we've realized and understood is that our approach to growth and development, and we can really put a split and call it the auto-centric approach to growth and development, has a lot of pre-built financial assumptions into it. Uh, build it and they will come is a part of our lexicon today, largely because as we've built auto-oriented infrastructure, uh, we've used it as an inducement to growth. Because we don't, as governments, have the feedback mechanisms that we do in a private marketplace, 
as we've experienced growth on the public balance sheet and as we've experienced growth in the private sector, we've never really been forced to do the math. We've never really been forced to sit down and say, okay, did this project pay for itself? Does this make sense? Back in my engineering days, we talked about the system. And in early Strong Towns time, I talked about the it's the system dude defense. Uh, Chuck, none of this stuff, this project might not make sense, but it's the system, dude. I mean, when you put everything together, everything just starts rocking and it all works. What we're starting to realize is that that's, that's not true. The whole is not equal more than the sum of the parts. In fact, when you lose money on every project that you do, uh, you're not making it up in volume at the end of the day. Uh, you're just running essentially a Ponzi scheme without the nefarious intentions. So for me, when we look at highway funding, it's pretty evident that most of what we have done the last 60 years beyond the initial investments don't pay for themselves at all. There's no mechanism to recoup the cost that we put into it. Uh, we talk about funding things with the gas tax. We did a little thing this summer on the blog that showed if we were going to fund everything that we said we were going to do, our gas tax at the federal level would have to go from 18.5 cents a gallon to 78 cents a gallon an unimaginable shift. And that's an unimaginable shift assuming no feedback loop. So in other words, as you increase the gas tax, people tend to drive less. We assume that, nope, everyone's just going to say, I'll suck it up and I'll pay 70 cents more a gallon and we'll just, you know, keep going. When we switch to transit, I think people who listen to Strong Towns know I come from a small town. We don't have a transit system. We don't have rail. My interest in transit is more theoretical than it is as a passionate user. So I'm interested to see, you know, what you guys have to say. But I see as an outsider looking at it, a lot of the same mechanisms and same thought process for funding that goes into the highway projects that don't pay for themselves. I like to tell people I'm against build it and they will come highway projects. I'm against build it and they will come transit projects. I'm against build it and they will come projects, period. One of the organizing principles of a place is that it has to be productive. Like we say at Strong Towns, solvency is a prerequisite for doing good things. So if we want to build good transit, we have to talk about how we build real productive, solvent, financially strong and healthy places. When we do that, there's a natural venue then to start connecting them with great transit lines. And that's kind of where I come to the debate from or come to the conversation from is this notion that I think transit is a great means to an end. It's not the end in and of itself. And if we build great places, we can make them even greater with really, really quality transit. Any comments on that? I think uh, the issue of build it and they will come is an interesting way of uh, describing the problem that we often run into with transit systems in that a lot of times we make the argument, transit advocates make the argument that you build a transit line and literally there will be TOD around it no matter what you do. Obviously, we know that's not true, and that's one of the major problems with doing suburban-type transit, because you build transit out in the middle of cornfields and say, okay, we're going to have developers come and uh, you know, surround these stations with, with new development, and it doesn't happen, and therefore the transit project sucks. I don't think that means that we should abandon lines to areas that are not developed. My personal sense is that we need a stronger government role in asserting a vision for dense mixed-use areas around those places that haven't yet been developed. And when I say that, I think of some things that some of the major cities around the world are doing right now. I think of Hudson Yards in New York City. I think of 
uh, Canary Wharf in London. I think of um, all of the circumferential lines being built in Paris. And what I see there are projects that are going to areas close to the cities, close to areas that are very dense, but significant government engagement in development at very high densities around those transit stations to make sure that when those transit lines open, there will immediately be very significant use of those transit lines. So I think we can say building they will come as long as we know we have confirmation that there will be that development that comes with the transit. Yeah, I mean, I think Canary Wharf in London is actually a great example here because the planning process didn't start with transit. The idea wasn't, we will build a transit line, now let's figure out what to build around it. The planning <laughs> process started with, we will create a new financial center for London. And in order to have that center function, one of the prerequisites is access. How do we get that access? We get that access by building a transit line. And I think that's a much more intelligent approach to transit to start by defining the need for it to be part of a greater vision of what a place is going to be. And fundamentally, to be the infrastructure that provides a needed service. So that I don't think about transit as transit is what brings density. I think of if you have a market demand that is bringing density, transit is what you need to do to support that growth. In addition to that, there's also this this market issue as well. And you're talking about Canary Wharf kind of creating that market to where you could serve with transit and create that access. At the same time, transit lines that we've seen be successful here in Minneapolis, in Charlotte, in Denver, what happens is if you map out all the development that's happened along those corridors, it's really proximate to downtown. And so what the transit line is actually doing to those emptier places is extending that market. So the, the downtowns, the reproductive places that you're talking about, are creating a market, and I call it kind of a vortex or or maybe like a gravity well uh, of market that is extended out by that transit line. So in Charlotte, for example, you saw there's actually a noose around the city that's the freeway, and they have uptown, what they call downtown is uptown. And what they did is they extended the transit line from uptown into the south corridor where they had an abandoned railroad uh, freight railroad line, which I usually don't advocate, but in this instance, it paralleled the South Boulevard, so it was actually a good idea. But what happened was is they extended that market that was happening in uptown to the next stops down, so 15-minute kind of radius. So when, if you look at a map at all the development that's happened in Charlotte that we attribute to the light rail line, it's actually kind of ends at this certain spot where you can see there's it's not as productive, and then it goes into the cornfield. So transit acts as that access point and increases the connection to that market that already exists in these productive places. So we can think about it in that way as well, not just, you know, in, in that instance in terms of extending the market. And, and I would add to that, I mean, if you want to do, I'm from Houston, so we love making fun of Dallas. We, <laughs> we started with a seven and a half mile light rail system, and they had about 70 miles at the same time. We actually got more development around seven and a half miles than they got around 70. Why is that? Because that seven and a half miles was going through places that were already dense, that already had a lot of activity. And developers much prefer building new density next to existing density where the market already exists and the activity already exists than building it in the middle of nowhere. So I'm looking at all of you. Is this panel suggesting that uh, if there is a line on a transit map for a 30-year vision of transit in a region and uh, the uh, municipality where that line happens to be running through says, you know what, uh, not, not really interested in changing our land use policy. Uh, you're saying that that's not an area ripe for transit? Yeah, that kind of follows, doesn't it? No, it's not an area ripe for transit and unless some major 
decision maker employer decides to build some sort of edge city like Century City or something like that where they can actually affect the gravity well of, of the economics and then you know that happens but otherwise no so speaking of center and edge uh, I want to pivot to Christoph here to talk about the purpose of transit. We got into this interesting discussion the other day trying to uh, form up the structure for, for the panel. And uh, you mentioned something about how the purpose of transit seems to be a little bit sort of lost today. We're not quite exactly sure what the purpose of transit is today, which I thought was an interesting thought product, especially when you talked about comparing that definition of what we think transit is today to maybe what it was 40 or 50 years ago. Yeah, I mean, if you think about, go back in time to the formation of the modern American transit agency, sometime around the 60s or 70s, there were two problems that cities were confronting. One of them was the fact that there, at that point, usually municipally run bus systems were basically in really bad financial shape, and they couldn't figure out how to support those systems. So you had essentially the American transit infrastructure falling apart, the American transit system falling apart. In Houston, we were maintaining transit buses in a wooden 1910 streetcar barn. It's that kind of situation, and there was no funding to be able to handle that. So they needed a funding source for these existing transit systems. And at the same time, there was a new demand, because people were starting to realize that such a thing as highway congestion existed. If you go back to the 40s, they were actually convinced that freeways would forever end car congestion. And by the 70s, they had realized that that was not, in fact, the case. So there was this demand for this new service. And essentially what it was was the idea of let's get white suburbanites to downtown jobs as quickly as possible without congestion. So That was this new idea of here's this new purpose for transit. You look at BART in San Francisco, and that system encapsulates that purpose. These were two very different instincts. One is somehow preserve these local bus systems, which were serving heavily minority, low-income, inner-city ridership. And the other was build this shiny new stuff for the suburbanites. And across the country, those two purposes got glued together and turned into a transit agency. And I think as a country, we have never resolved those conflicting impulses. Sounds like a match made in heaven. What do you mean? And, and now we've added a third to it that also conflicts, which is this development idea. This idea that you build transit in order to create development. And so I don't think we're having a rational national discussion about what transit is about. And you look at these systems that are schizophrenic. You look at new streetcar lines that are simply being overlaid on top of a bus system with no thought as to how they work together. You look at these light rail lines that are trying to do multiple things at once. They're trying to go far out in the suburbs because that's the political impulse. But then in order to get ridership, you're sort of trying to tie them into inner city neighborhoods and funnel a bunch of buses into them to get the trains full. And what I find is whenever we talk about transit, there are very few people actually having a discussion about what is the purpose of transit? What is the mission of a transit agency? And without having that discussion, I don't think we can plan good transit. You know, I think it's always going to be difficult to find sort of any one definition of transit because ultimately it is and probably will remain a social service, right? I mean, to a significant degree, transit plays a very important role in getting people who can't afford other means around. So I, I'm not sure that that is a negative thing because that can't be the only, I guess my feeling is that that, that cannot be the only justification for transit, nor should it. So it's okay to have an equity mission for your transit, but also have a, a mission that's designed for people of other classes, 
I think. I, I don't necessarily see that as, those as, as contrary to each other. I mean, I would say, actually, to me, I define the mission of transit as moving people. That, that, that to me, transit is a basic infrastructure that exists to give people access to the things they need to do in life. And I prefer that mission to t- be about people. Not be about specific kinds of people, but just be about people. <laughs> but, I mean, if I may, the history of, our recent, of recent transit has all been about the conflict about which people, right? Because the conflict that you just established was a conflict between inner city, primarily minorities who can't afford to drive, and white suburbanite wealthier people who need to be provided BART-like services that are fast into the city. You set up the conflict there. Maybe that's changing with the increased population in our urban cores, especially of wealthier people. Maybe we're starting to see a new coherence in our transit system. I want to jump in there to say, to ask a question. Uh, well, yes, we have, we are seeing a resurgence in population in our urban, in urban course. Uh, but that actually also may have another unintended consequence. Uh, when, uh, the uh, white suburbanites uh, that uh, Christoph uh, mentioned in, in, in the beginning of his his uh, statement uh, left. Um, the the good news is that the folks that were left behind were people uh, who actually still had a transit system. Um, if that inverts itself, uh, and we have a situation where um, essentially we turn the suburban areas that we know right now uh, into places where they can afford to live, where, where folks who don't have choice about housing, don't have choice about their, where their job location is at, and uh, are perhaps gentrified out of the places they currently live in the core cities, um, what that turns into is a bunch of people living in a place that has a land use pattern that's inhospitable transit and also lacking in, in the ability to sort of financially pay for it because those places are falling apart. So I don't know if there is, if Chuck or Jeff have any. A lot of what we do today, to me, is direct descendant of the highway mentality. And the fact that a lot of people building transit systems are simply highway engineers that we brought over to do. And it's just, it's the same mentality. We have the hub and the spokes that go out and we're trying to bring in commuters. And it's fascinating because when you go out, like on our North Star line, uh, we have these beautiful stops in cornfields, uh, for the people who, you know, in their early commutes come in and, and park and then, walk through the nice parking lot to the, the beautiful shelter. And then you come here where there's 50 times the ridership and there's this tiny little stall, you know, that the snow is all built up in and, you know, there's no facilities at all. It's a mentality to me that prioritizes the auto-oriented development pattern, the, the low productivity, spread everybody out uh, mentality. And, and to me whether it's an equity issue or whatever other issue you want to lay over top of it, that's a financially stupid thing to do. You're putting this massive infrastructure out there to serve nobody, to serve them luxuriously in many ways as the idea of getting over the, the stigma issue, but not really reaching people. So if, if we're going to say transit about moving people, I equate people with productivity and I, I think we could find a common ground along those lines. Like, where are the people, and how do we move them to the places they want to go? Focusing on the you know the greatest number of people we can move. One of the most radical things we could do with U.S. transit today is say that every rider is worth the same. Say that we will not judge the value of moving somebody by anything other than that they are a person, and that if that your investments in transit, in capital and operating should be based on how many people are using that. And that you should put your high dollars into the services that move the most people. 
Wow. Moving the most people for the lowest amount of money. That sounds, uh, that's crazy talk, actually. I think that would go fly against, well, not our thought process, but perhaps our practice. Uh, but we've spent a lot of time just now talking about people and places and core and edge, uh, which begs the question to me about uh, what are we serving and how are we serving uh, those people? And Jeff, uh, I know that you've talked a lot uh, in your writings and uh, podcasting about uh, when looking at new services across the country or realignments of existing service um, to suggest that you, we should look at the whole transit network instead of just a corridor by corridor understanding of uh, how is this one going to rank up? Um, I mean, you have Transit Christmas every year. We talk about how the corridors have, have, have rated in and who's going to get the money and how well they've done um, in their various land use and transportation uh, and cost-effectiveness scores. You, you seem to just suggest that, that that corridor by corridor situation isn't necessarily a making a stronger overall network that serves both the core and the edge. Well, if we're talking about the federal process and getting funding from the FTA, then it's kind of, if we're trying to build a transit system that works for everybody, we're doing it too slowly. Here in the Twin Cities, you have a lot, you're getting a line once every 10 years. And part of that is because you're going after federal funding, which is a a small pot of money when you compare it to how much demand there is out there. I did a report called the Transit Space Race uh, a couple years ago that looked at all the transit projects that were in the kitty around the country. So about 636 projects or so, and only about... I want to say a third of those had funding you know, numbers attached to them. With those funding numbers, I think it was like $250 billion worth of transit projects. If you put those through the federal process and assumed that the locality was going to match 50% what the feds were going to put in, it would take you 75 years to build that. And that's only a third of those projects. So we're talking about building systems where we want to make this huge change one at a time, very, very slowly over decades, where in... Back in the day, we built this interstate highway system in a fairly rapid amount of time. At least, you know, I think the last part of it was finished in the 90s or something like that in Boston or something along those lines. But we're just doing it so slowly. So we need to start thinking in a network way, which I think a place like Los Angeles is actually starting to do, where they're thinking about, okay, well, we're not necessarily going to get all this transit funding from the FTA, but we can do it on our own. So we're going to raise our own money, our own half-cent sales tax, and we're going to bond against it so we can build this stuff faster and a little bit cheaper, and maybe we can build a network that actually will work for everybody in addition to the buses. And I think another thing that I want to add, and it's a little bit of a, a side thing, is that we shouldn't just focus also on fixed guideway transit, the bus rapid transit, the light rail, the streetcars, et cetera. We need to focus on the bus networks too and how those work together with the system. Because I think, I think sometimes we get a little bit caught, uh, talking too much about, you know, it's my, one of my favorite things. Obviously my, my handle is the overhead wire. So I like trains and that type of stuff. But at the same time, we need to think about everything, the whole network and the bikes, the buses, the trains the cars, everything. Well, just going back really quickly to the issue of of how networks are constructed and whether we should be doing things line by line or not, I I think it raises, or it's worth thinking about the history of U.S. transit construction. Um, You know, during the 50s and 60s, the the federal government effectively sponsored whole networks in Washington, Atlanta, and San Francisco. And it sort of stopped doing that in the 1980s. It decided, okay, this is too expensive. It takes too long. And we should just go line by line instead. And they did, you know, Baltimore and Miami and they did one line at a time. And now we have the process that we have today, which is again, line by line. Jeff, do you think that there, that the San Francisco, Atlanta and Washington examples, which were network wide as in terms of the way they were constructed, do you think those are better examples than the light rail systems that we're constructing today? The wheels are turning. <laughs> 
Yes and no. I mean, those were also not necessarily the full networks. Actually, if you go back to, I actually, so my master's thesis was on the politics of rail in Austin. And if you, and I, and part of that was I went through, Princeton has houses these things called OTA reports and Office of Technology Assessment back in the 60s. They actually did reports on how the planning process for those initial lines went. So in Washington, they actually have a report for here in the Twin Cities because they never built anything, but they were talking about doing a big network. And Atlanta and Washington, D.C. and BART and all that stuff and how that process went about. And they did it wrong as well. I mean, they, they were bad too. I mean, WMATA is probably the best example of a full network build-out that we have because BART never really finished. They stopped when they decided that they were done and they ran out of money. Atlanta had a lot of racial issues because they wanted to save money. They only went to a certain spot. And some, you know, the county structure of Atlanta is so messed up. There's like 50 of them and they're all like, it's like a jigsaw puzzle and you cross over one way and it's ridiculous. And so one county said, I don't want to be in the sales tax. Another county said, I do. And so that got all messed up. And then they wanted to run BRT lines instead of the subways through the African-American neighborhood. And, and people went, you know, they freaked out about that. So we're not, we didn't do it well really then, and we're not really doing it well now. I think there's something to be said for the way we're, you know, we, and it evolved to, to being subway lines and connecting really productive places to we're building light rail lines because they're cheaper. And not necessarily because they're connecting places, but because it's, a, it's something that's less expensive. Yeah, you can spread the money out more. And that's why light rail was actually became a thing in the United States is because you could actually, you know, build more of it for the same amount that you were doing these subway lines for. And then we get past when light rail became too expensive, then we got to streetcars. And that's why we have the streetcar discussion these days. And then when streetcars got too expensive, we got to bus rapid transit. And then when we got to bus rapid transit, people got to rapid bus. And so all this kind of devolution of the cost, 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 cost is, is, is kind of the bad way to think about it. We need to think about places in terms of of where we can connect and what matters. There's a, Christoph and I were discussing last night, uh, Pittsburgh, where there's downtown Pittsburgh and then there's Oakland, which is not Oakland, California. It's actually Oakland, which is the second, uh, second or third largest employment center in the state of Pennsylvania. And they are discussing connecting it with the BRT line when it really, it's so many employees and it would be so much better to do it with a subway, but they got burned because they spent a lot of money going across the river to the, to the stadiums, right? To see the Pittsburgh Pirates and the and the and the the Steelers, the Steelers play. Sorry, they, they built fan. they built a subway whose major purpose is connecting stadiums, which were already within walking distance of the end of the existing line. Yeah. <laughs> so to reiterate, Yona, I think they were doing it poorly then, and we're doing it poorly now, and I think we can do it better. Well, I would say that one of the most radical, another radical idea is we should plan systems. We are planning rail systems. We should just plan systems. And you go to Germany, for example, and they do a much better job of this. Like, your goal should be, let's start mapping out a system of lines that serve the places where people want to go and that create a zone of access. To me, the zone of access idea, a zone where frequent transit within that zone, you can get anywhere you want within that zone on transit or runs at least every 15 minutes. And map out that system and figure out where do the lines need to be, what level of service do we need on each of them, and then you start looking at what kind of capacity do we need on each of these lines, what kind of speed do we need, and you can start to see, oh, some of these buses the best tool, some of these light rail is the best tool, hey, this one's got got off the charts ridership, maybe we should be thinking about a subway there, but be thinking about it as a whole system. And so 
You also can do that line, if you think about it as a series of upgrades, we are upgrading a line rather than creating something new. That's a lot more sustainable financial model too. This is what, when you were talking, that's what I was thinking too. Like this is the model for going from a low level of service to a high level of service as the productivity of the place increases. I've for a long time now made diehard transit advocates mad by saying we should get rid of the the whole federal funding approach because literally the money we have in our communities if we were oriented around that type of a vision how do we connect these places how do we create this kind of self-reinforcing cycle of of you know upgrading the system there's enough wealth and value in our communities if we use a financing mechanism of value capture we can fund a lot of this stuff very quickly instead of waiting 75 years for a system to build out value capture I think Jonas so, wants something to say about that so we we, we, uh, we actually looked at value capture it when I was with the Center for Transit Oriented Development and um, if you do it correctly yes it could work but wh- the way we do it today is we start loading all this stuff onto these individual projects and the last project in necessarily. So there's a, an existing development area and then we build a transit line through and then we want the projects that come up after to pay for all the things that we want that came after the original development was already there. And so we continue to stack things on top. So we have we have we wanted to pay for the transit and then we wanted to pay for the infrastructure for the new development and then we wanted to pay for the affordable housing and then we wanted to pay for the parks and then we wanted to pay for this so we stack up all this expectations on the value capture uh, mechanism that it crum- crumbles under its own weight so we have to be careful about when we think about it and when we were talking about streetcars in a place like Seattle or a place like Portland that have we, we laud as, as success stories. They also had the value of being really proximate to the downtown to that productive place and have a really large pot of land that they could access to where they could capture that value from. So the rail yards that were just north of Portland, which they built the Pearl District out of, those allowed them to capture a ton of value because it was empty. Not zero. necessarily. Yeah, it went from zero. It went from zero to 60 quickly. And the same thing with South Lake Union, which Paul Allen's company bought a lot of the property there, and then they could pay for half the, half the line because they were going to do a whole ton of stuff with Amazon and other places. So that's something that kind of sometimes gets left out of the value capture discussion. I know that there are hopes that it can be the kind of savior of transit, but then, you know, it wants to be the savior of affordable housing and all these other stuff that I mentioned before, too. So so we need to think about it kind of a little bit in terms of value capture. We need to think about it more holistically as well. So in terms of value capture, I would just welcome all of you to come visit Chicago, the land of the tax increment financing district, where <laughs> some sort of gigantic portion of the city is under a TIF zone, and the result is that it becomes very difficult to finance basic city services because we've decided to value capture everything. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's my major concern about value capture. I like the idea of saying that, well, an improvement is going to improve our city in some way and we should try to find a way to figure out how to get some of that value out to put back into the system. But I have a lot of concerns about how it's implemented. Now, to go back to something that I think bunch of you were saying in terms of maximizing the system for the people who you want to use and maximizing the system so that it, it, the modes are appropriate for the types of uses that will be used there. Uh, I was on a mobile workshop yesterday as part of the conference and we went to the MnDOT uh, State Highway Command Center and they had a map of the metro transit, actually, the metro transit service zones. And apparently there are five service zones in the Metro Transit hierarchy. And the five service zones are effectively uh, 
based on density of population and employment, poverty rates, existing transit usage, things like that. Things like that that we can rely on to, to predict future transit use. And if you look at those transit zones, you'll see that they make a lot of sense. They're like central Minneapolis, central St. Paul, and maybe University Avenue between them. But what you don't see are parts of those, you know, central transit zones extending out far into the suburbs. And one thing that I think is worth thinking about is, can we take the existing metrics that we already have and use them to better think about where our biggest investments should be made? Now, in the Twin Cities, you were talking about the problems with the North Star Line, uh, the problems with these investments that go way out uh, to the edge of the region. Why don't we just take advantage of the existing service hierarchies that we already know? We already know that the population and, and employment densities are here. We already know that the transit users are here. So we should be making the biggest transit investments right here in the center of the region. Yeah, one of my favorite stats from this conference is my comparison of they're doing something called arterial BRT on Snelling, which is actually an awesome project. Um, that's 8,700 daily trips, and they're spending $25 million to do those upgrades. And meanwhile, the red line BRT, 900 trips, $112 million. We have the metrics. We know which one of those is a better project. That's not hard to figure out. But I think that's, it's actually an example where part of the reason for that has to do with county lines. It has to do with how Minnesota funds tra transit through local railroad authorities. And this points to the fact that funding is a huge part of the dysfunction of our transit system. And it starts not with transit funding at all, but with interstates. The reason why transit funding doesn't add up is because the federal government started subsidizing suburban residents' commutes via the interstate highway system in the 1950s. And it is a massive subsidy. What a new freeway expansion does is it converts essentially zero-value land to land that a developer can make a bunch of profits off of by building a bunch of new houses. And no, the gas tax burned on that highway will never support that highway. There is a massive flow of gas tax money from the urban core of every U.S. metro area out to the suburbs to support all of that. And transit funding has been sort of a kludge to make up for that. A, a, we've sort of tried to augment a broken road system by trying to break the transit system in the inverse to make up for that. And, and I think over and over you can really see the funding leading to rather bad decisions. Yeah, I, I, and I agree that. with you. I think that's brilliant. It's interesting because having worked on highway projects, we see uh, the DOT go out and build an interchange or put in a, a, a bypass or and all of a sudden, we're just making people millionaires overnight. We don't capture any of that. We don't assess them for that. We don't go out ahead of the project and actually acquire the land. The same thing is true with a lot of our transit projects. And here, I'm, I'm the small government guy saying, if we're going to drop a billion dollars on the green line, why didn't we go out and acquire a whole bunch of those parking lots and a whole bunch of those underutilized buildings ahead of putting that investment in before we created a ton of value there. Because what do we see now? We see a lot of people speculating on that land increase. We have a property tax system, which encourages people to hold on to the land a long time and not develop it. I agree that when we look at like the Chicago value capture type approach, it's, it is so completely messed up. It's, it's not worth copying. But I think if we're going to get serious about this and we're going to do it, there's a lot of things that we can do at the local government level 
uh, that maybe coming from a higher level would be really distasteful, but at the local government level is just sound business sense uh, that could fund a lot of this stuff in a real competitive way in a short period of time. I think that's a good point, but we also have this this system that we probably need to fix that transit agencies are not allowed to be land use agencies and, and then none of that stuff can mix. And so that's kind of why that happens. You can't go in. I mean, the FTA up until recently wouldn't even let you buy, you know, use your staging property, right? And to, to, to use for, for joint development. They can do that. You can do that now. But, but, you know, for a place like Hong Kong, which that's their, a lot of their business comes from, from developing property rather than running the trains, but the trains end up, you know, helping them build their property. So it's kind of this, this connection that, that needs to be fixed a little bit, but also people are afraid of that because they're afraid of the transit agency becoming the same as what the highway agencies were when they, the interstate highway system ripped through a bunch of neighborhoods and brought up land and, and destroyed places. And that's why we have EISs. It, it is. <laughs> Although the highways, you know, when we built the highways, we were never smart about actually acquiring the land that we were creating millionaires on. And so, you know, you look at Hong Kong, uh, for us to, to tie our hands and say, you know what, our transportation organizations are just about transportation, you get one-dimensional responses. If we started to have, and this is why I think a lot of this is going to have to be localized, because you can't have this nuanced of a conversation from Washington, D.C. about acquiring this parcel or acquiring that parcel ahead of a project. If we're going to do things like that, uh, we've got to we've got to change those handcuffs we put on uh, all of these agencies. So I think a great example, uh, since we are sitting uh, next to Nicollet Mall and talking about uh, localized value capture, which happens to be the method of choice for uh, the theoretical construction uh, of a streetcar network here in Minneapolis, and similarly used uh, perhaps in St. Paul, maybe maybe not. They're still thinking about it. See someone in the crowd who may know something about that saying, mm. but in Minneapolis, uh, we lobbied hard our, our legislature to be able to use value capture as a tool for our streetcar system. Um, and uh, I live in a neighborhood uh, which would uh, be uh, on the one end of the nine mile uh, length of co- uh, corridor that we've identified that streetcar to go down, uh, Nicollet Avenue to the south and Central Avenue to the north. Um, and as it goes through my neighborhood, uh, as I understand they've looked at the zoning map of my neighborhood and where the transit uh where the investment would be made and it would stop in my neighborhood my the end of my neighborhood essentially would be the end of the line and it would turn around similar to the way it did uh when there was a streetcar there 50 or 60 years ago and the real question becomes uh, when you look at the report that says well what is the development capacity what is the development capacity of the corridor and again it's nine miles long it goes through very diverse neighborhoods, both in north and south uh, of the river and of downtown. And you actually find out that the report says the development capacity is, is such. Um, you have a area to the north of the city, uh, which is, um, you know, got quite a few people in it, but not a, not as, uh, as dense of a population as to the south um, of downtown. And because the zoning there uh, has some capacity for six to eight-story uh, buildings uh, in a few spots, uh, the development capacity was basically rated on Central Avenue uh, in the first sort of chunk as high. 
which is fantastic, except for the fact that if you go talk to the council person who is uh, trying to help development projects go on in his ward, he, he will tell you that nothing pencils, absolutely nothing pencils in the marketplace. And so uh, the funny part is that there is a zoning code that will allow you to build large buildings that can't be built because they are larger uh, in capacity than the market will bear at this point for that part of the town. And then you go to my neighborhood uh, on the very south end, and you find that the zoning code basically allows, uh, well, it's a quilt work uh, or patchwork quilt of, of uh, possibilities. Um, there's actually one block that has seven different zoning classifications, one next to another, next to another, next to another. And they're all different in terms of what you are allowed to build in terms of height, in terms of mass, in terms of FAR. And so you end up in a situation where if you wanted to redevelop and use value capture to, to, to actually have a streetcar line, um, the ability for someone to actually buy a property and increment it to the point where it was worth significantly more uh, is almost impossible because you basically have a different zoning classification every 50 to 100 feet. So I tell my neighbors, if you want to see a streetcar one day, um, the, in order to uh, make TIFF work, uh, in order to have financing, you must have increment, which means we cannot have TIFF as a financing mechanism until we actually have land use policy and the neighborhood that supports that land use policy for some kind of change. Because otherwise, nothing is ever going to happen. And we're going to wonder why uh, our bus route actually got stopped uh, six blocks north of our neighborhood uh, when they were able to fund the initial segment of the streetcar. Uh, and then we were then forced to transfer instead of getting one, one seat ride to downtown. Which leads me uh, to uh, a great segue about streetcars. Um, end of rant uh, for the time being. Uh, we've promised many. Um, it seems like every city in the country over the last five to seven years, uh, Yona, has uh, wanted a streetcar. And uh, I have my own skepticisms about how that is playing out. I think maybe it could be done better. I think that maybe if you fix this relationship between land use policy uh, and transportation, and maybe that's best at the local level, and there's maybe different ways to think about that. But what is that doing overall? As you see across the country, you've written a lot about streetcar systems and, and how they're, they are being integrated or not integrated uh, into the transit networks you've been talking about. Uh, what have you found uh, in that, in that explain, exploration? Well, I want to respond to what you, the situation you were describing a second ago. One thing I would, I would say is essential is if you are investing tens of millions of dollars in a transit line or planning to invest tens of millions of dollars in a transit line, if you don't do a rezoning around that project, you failed half the test, right? I mean, you're not serious. You're not serious. It's a joke. And uh, that, that seems to be a huge failure on the part of Minneapolis. Um, now, in terms of streetcar systems, um, you know, I think I should start out by saying that the definition of what a streetcar is is itself a controversy, right? I mean, people call many different things controversies, or many different things streetcars. In fact, there's a booth in the... In streetcar the called controversy? Yeah. So there's a booth in the convention of uh, RATP, which is the Paris metro operator and transit operator. They have a booth in there because now they have an international contracting division so that your local transit agency can contract its services out to a private operator that's 100% controlled by the French state. But we'll get to that in a second. Anyway, they have... A vote for local control, I think, indefinitely. That must be a vote for local control. <laughs> they, give out, they give out these packets of information about how they can run your streetcar, your local streetcar, right? For all the cities that want their streetcar. And the examples they have in the book, that they, or the, the packet that they have in English, obviously for an American audience, of streetcars are all these things that I would refer to as tramways in Europe, and which are actually quite similar to light rail in Houston. So um, the term has clearly been doctored or changed around a bit. So when I say streetcar, I mean uh, light rail vehicles running in the street 
in the same lanes as cars with effectively no transit priority. Okay, so baseline, that's what it is. Now, cities all over the country, including Minneapolis, want to do these projects, right? Uh, and we've seen them open in Tucson, Seattle, Portland, uh, what other cities? Tampa, Cincinnati's going to get one, Kansas City, okay, all over the place. Right. Uh, the problem with these projects, fundamentally, is that in reality, their, their average speed is generally slower than the buses they replace. Primarily because they can't get around cars when the cars are stuck in the same right of way. So that's one significant problem with the streetcar. The other, I would say more significant problem with the streetcar is that we're wasting money on them. We're spending tons of money to stick rails in the street just so the train can share a lane with cars. It's crazy. It's a total waste of money. If you feel that it's important enough to you to put rail lines in the middle of the street for a train then let that train go through without being interrupted by car traffic. And by the way, give it signal preemption so when it goes through the traffic light, it's not sitting there. I don't know how many of you have taken the green line, uh, light rail line, and I, have some hands. I, I hate to complain about it because it is good ridership right now, but that train is slow, and it's slow because it's stuck at traffic lights. That's unacceptable. We put in a billion dollars on that project, and we get a train that's stuck at traffic lights. I think that's unacceptable. And it's the same thing as the streetcars. It's the same phenomenon. It is spending lots of money on transit without giving transit priority. And that's exactly what it is, and we're seeing it all over the country. I mean, I would say that what transit riders care about is service. It's, is this going where I want to go? How long will it take me to get there? How reliable will that be? How often is this going to come along so that I can leave when I want to leave? And it's amazing how many U.S. streetcar projects completely forget that idea. It's not just the fact that you're providing service, which may be slower than the bus you're replacing. <laughs> it's the fact that you're running at ridiculous frequencies. We have a, a streetcar line that Dallas is building that is running at such a frequency and is so short that if you miss the streetcar, just barely miss it as you walk up to the station, it will be quicker to walk the entire length of the line than to wait for the next streetcar. I mean, why is that worth building? That is not transportation. That is decoration. And we are doing this over and over. Um, and, and so I think going back to thinking about service is a really important piece of this. And really asking the question, is that capital dollar that we are putting in measurably increasing service? And if it is, that's a great thing. But if it isn't, we should be saying, let's not spend that money. So you guys can boo me if you want. Maybe you should boo me ahead of time. <laughs> boo. Boo. Boo this man. Um, Mr. Streetcar. Yeah, right. The overhead wire. Uh, you know, we wrote a book called uh, Streetcar, Street, uh, Street Smart, Streetcars and Cities in the 21st Century, where um, we talked about how to build streetcars and the economic development uh, potential from streetcars. And we've done a lot of research related to it. I think there is something to be said for an in-traffic streetcar where you're, you can't get the politics right the first go-around. And I think in Cincinnati, they're seeing this right now, where they fought so hard to get what they were looking for. And it, it, was, a, it was a decision made locally. Um, and they paid, they're paying for it locally, but it's a circulator. And so I don't necessarily feel like, and I've said this on my podcast a million times, I don't necessarily feel like line hall transit operations should be streetcars and mixed traffic. I think they should be tramways. I think they should have dedicated lanes and signal priority. Now, 
you can't just build a dedicated lane without doing the signal priority like Yona was talking about because then you get something like the green line. It's how, it's how the transit integrates with urbanism that's really important. And doing the signal priority allows you to, do, to go through those, those places where the block structure is such that is walkable because those are the places that have, you know, that there, you, you should be going through with a transit line to connect to places. But the speed issue it comes up. But on a circulator where you can actually connect a number of different productive places, like in Portland, where you're connecting the Pearl District to downtown to the South Waterfront, I think it actually does make a little bit of sense. And I think there's some, some defense of it. I know that, you know, there's been a kind of a, a, a not a bike lash, not a, a bus lash, but a street lash, maybe a streetcar lash. I don't know what that's called. <laughs> Anyways, to where we can think about it a little bit more nuanced uh, for those types of situations where it might be appropriate. Where in Portland, you know, nobody was going to allow them to to take up, you know, a, a lane of traffic, but they run on such uh, streets that aren't really traveled as much as others that it might be okay. So you can boo me if you want, but I think there are actually places where it's okay uh, to to think about it that way. I and I, I agree, line hall operation. I don't think you should have it in in street streetcar because then you get those situations where travel time matters a lot. Well, and I I think Tucson might actually be. I mean, Tucson's looking like it's probably going to be a pretty successful model. And and part of the reason there too is that's a line that's long enough to connect meaningful destinations together, which is another one of our problems with a lot of our streetcars is we're building them way too short. They, we're doing things that do not capture very many entire trips. We're just capturing pieces of trips, and that's necessarily inconveniencing riders. Um, I mean, I will point to one of my favorite transit projects in the country because I ride it virtually every day is, is the Houston Light Rail Line on Main Street. No bias here. And, you know, that's a project, seven and a half miles. We get 40,000 average weekday boardings. We blow the doors off of every other modern light rail line in the United States with those numbers. Only Boston and San Francisco beat us in terms of boardings per mile. But why does it work so well? Number one, it connects two downtown-sized employment centers with a bunch of other destinations along the line. So that's great. Secondly, it's fast. It has a dedicated lane. It's about 50% faster than the buses that were running there. Um, it is incredibly reliable. Because it's in that dedicated lane with signal priority, it does not stop between stations. And it ties into the bus system incredibly well. This is really good service, and it's running frequently every six minutes all day. I just ride one stop for my morning commute, and I cannot beat it. Because by the time, even if I have to wait six minutes for the next car, it'll be faster than walking that distance. And it's actually cheaper to operate than the buses that were there before. I mean, that's the kind of project we should be looking for. Um, something that makes the rider experience better, that carries so many people that it really makes financial sense. Can I loop back then to, to maybe answer our earlier question about what is the purpose of transit? Transit, faster than walking. <laughs> so I will say, okay, so this is something that's, that's said a lot uh, about the Portland streetcar is that you can walk faster than it. Well, if you have real-time travel arrival and you can schedule your arrival to the streetcar, you're definitely not going to outwalk it. 21st century technology, Jeff Wood? Is that possible? What is, wait, what's 21st century? 21st century, real-time information about transit. Yeah, 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 it's 21st century. Wow. Actually, it's at the end of... No, it's 21st century. <laughs> I'm confusing my date. I'm confusing we, my dates. No, I'm, I'm thinking back to, uh, I'm thinking back to the late 1900s when we invented cars and uh, all the complaints that the, the car homers give us when we talk about transit. Um, anyways. 
Well, I think in part when I look at, uh, I think going back to something actually you just Jeff you said earlier about how are we uh, looking at uh, mode choice and how are we looking at the thought process of what modes should be doing for us? You, you just mentioned Christoph about uh, it was actually cheaper to run the trains than it was to run the bus because we actually got it at a frequency and a ridership that it actually made sense. And I think on the other side of that spectrum, we find that uh, we're not doing that math at all uh, in terms of when we look at what kind of places that we are looking to put new transit service, especially, um, we're not asking ourselves, well, how much is it going to take in order to transform that place if it is not otherwise walkable or bikeable to reach that destination? Uh, because if we have to do something like accommodate cars in large quantities in order to make people be able to get on that stop, um, then we actually have a different set of math. And, and that doesn't seem to be factored in to uh, the cost per rider per stop. Right? Because we can have a line that goes to a lot of different places and goes through a lot of different types of land use uh, and goes uh, whether it's a long distance or a short distance. And I think uh, we can make a we can make a point to say, like, if if the Mall of America was 25 miles outside of downtown uh, Minneapolis, which is it's not quite that far, but say it's twice as far as it is today. Uh, you know, there's structured parking out there. There's what, a million square feet of retail. Uh, that's probably on par to, you know, what's roaming around, um, uh, in, in either downtown. Um, you could make a case that the Mall of America as a private entity could say, you know what? We want a transit stop. And actually, we're a rather productive place because we provide the city of Bloomington X billions of dollars. Not billions, but lots and lots and lots of tax dollars. Um, and we know actually we have a little bit extra to, to go around and we're going to, we're going to opt into something that allows us to say, you know what? Um, it costs a, we have no walkability here because we don't have people living in our mall. Um, well, at least hopefully not yet. Uh, but there are, there are buildings and more stuff. We actually, they do have a lot of, they do have a lot of hotels hotels around there. I slept on the floor of the Mall of America, so I guess we can't, can't go too far in that direction. Uh, it is possible. Um, but the that's a long story for another day, maybe later on this evening over beer, uh, to say that, well, actually, private places should be able to opt into a system. We should actually be able to say, if I've made it a large infrastructure investment someplace, that um, we should be able to say, well, you know what, that's on you, but you provided all that parking. You provided you know, a lot of place where you can't otherwise walk and bike to. Um, so that's great. You know, pony up and we'll include you in our system. I think we can't dismiss that if some private entity wants to make an investment that we should have an ability to do that. And obviously our first transit line, uh, was able to accommodate the Mall of America, but mostly because the Mall of America is next to the airport and not because it was a productive destination. And I think that's going back to kind of our earlier conversation about productive destinations. And I want to kind of underscore this again, because I think connecting productive places, um, is a huge part of thinking through again, moving people and moving people in places uh, that allows us to recapture value. And, and I want to, uh, to talk a little bit and pivot the discussion um, a little bit back to uh, Christoph to talk about Houston and a couple of lessons learned about the productivity of place. Um, generally, Houston is not thought of as being a highly productive place, right? It's a huge place, right? I remember uh, being down in Houston a few years ago. Uh, I was my previous employer had an office there, and I remember uh, we were our office was way out the west, west side of town. I was driving down I ten uh, towards downtown to see a friend, and I remember seeing the sign that said, "Downtown, welcome to Houston, downtown Houston, twenty miles." 
I was like, no, no, wait, I said, welcome to Houston. Well, yeah, I was in Houston. And so I just wasn't anywhere near downtown. It was a long, long way away. So we don't think of Houston as being a high productivity land use place. Um, but yet you, you seem to have found a way uh, to make a network of buses and, and rail uh, be high frequency uh, over, how many square miles is Houston? It's like, Hundred, it's, it's a mass. It's Houston is absolutely massive. It's I mean, like we twice are the, the twin cities. largest city within city limits in the United States, and we're going to be third in the not too distant future. I think. <laughs> Keep going. So, you, you, the Houston Metro has undertaken this process called the reimagining. Reimagine Houston, reimagine Houston Metro. The Transit System Reimagining Project. Yes, tell us more about that because we've been pretty fascinated from afar about what that has done and what you're promising to do with no additional investment of operating money. So yeah, what are you promising? <laughs> um, yeah, and we're actually voting on this this Thursday. Um, so what we're essentially did is we took a look at our entire local bus system. And we said, we are going to do a blank slate redesign of this entire system. We are going to forget all of the history that built this up over decades, where literally we have bus routes. You can trace their genealogy back to streetcar lines. And we have some incredibly stupid bus routes. We have one bus route where there are two points which are an eight-minute walk apart and a 20-minute bus ride. <laughs> and, and you get that kind of thing when you make a series of incremental changes over time while the city changes around you and the system fundamentally doesn't make sense anymore. So what we did is we said we are going to redesign the entire system. We are opening two new light rail lines, so that gave us some ability to shift that bus service elsewhere. But fundamentally, we said we're going to use the same number of buses we have today, the same operating hours, but we're going to put them where they will do the most good. We figured out 50% of our routes were designed to actually maximize ridership, the remaining 50% just to cover area. And we said, we're going to switch to 80-20, 80% of our resources going to ridership. And the fundamental design idea is a grid of high-frequency routes. And we are essentially tripling the number of people who are served by seven-day-a-week high-frequency service, bus routes that run every 15 minutes, seven days a week. We are speeding up our riders' trips dramatically. We figured out we were running nearly every trip through downtown, running downtown like a giant transit center, taking people way out of their way to do that. If you set up a trip, you're setting up those transfers in logical locations. So, you know, half of our trips, we compare 30 places around the system, half of those trips get faster by 10 minutes or more. A quarter of them get faster by 20 minutes or more. We're looking at this at greatly benefiting our existing riders, and we're looking at it as also increasing our ridership by about 20% with the same resources, which is pretty amazing. Um, and it's interesting how much of that comes down to, first of all, being willing to reconsider the entire system instead of messing around with one little bit at a time and having the political will to do that. I told my fellow board members, we're going to get yelled at a lot. It turns out the results, it turns out our bus system was so incredibly inefficient and lousy that the downsides of this have been far less than we predicted. 80% of our riders will still be able to board a bus at the exact same stop they board at today. Um, but it really shows what the potential is in the bus system. And ultimately, it's this idea of freedom, this idea of we're creating this zone served by a grid of high-frequency routes where you can move anywhere within that zone seven days a week without looking at a schedule. 
in, on routes that actually make sense. We have streets like Shepherd, which currently has something like six different routes along the length of that street, all serving different parts of the street. Instead, we'll have one route that runs the entire length of the street. It will actually be a logical system. And I look across the United States and look at how stupid the vast majority of our local bus systems are. And I think that is the biggest untapped potential we have in U.S. transit is simply rethinking all of those buses and running them in a way that actually serves our current riders and makes the system useful to more people. And that's opportunity. There's an awful lot of people out there who, for example, might be taking a lower paying job since they cannot get further away to that higher paying job or might not be able to get that community college class since they simply cannot get there in a feasible amount of time. And that's a really big deal for a lot of people's lives. Okay. I'm going to destroy all my credibility with anybody here that I may have because I know you guys are all big transit people. I rode a bus, not a school bus, but a transit bus for the first time two years ago in Chicago. And I'd have someone with me who, I mean, we don't have, understand where I come from. No. Yeah, you can boo me. That's boo. fine. I don't live in a city with a bus system. Um, one of the things that was always bizarre to me is I, I would look at the maps I would look at the time schedules. I've had seven quarters of calculus. I have an engineering degree. I look at this and I'm like, this doesn't make any damn sense to me. You know, it doesn't make any friggin' sense to me. I looked at your transit map in Houston. It took me two seconds to realize that this was the most genius thing I had ever seen. And I, I, if you're projecting a 20% increase in ridership, I, I think you might be overwhelmed. Because really, the barriers to riding... A lot of it for me was, it was easier for me often to walk than to try to figure out the whole damn bus system. And I, I exaggerate. I've taken a bus quite a few times. I took it a lot in Europe. Over here, not so much. But your system, I looked at that and it was instantly clear that this was a genius approach. And I would be shocked if it was not copied by cities literally everywhere because it was, it, it is brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I, I applaud you. Yay, Houston. <laughs> So I want to uh, pivot to, uh, to open up the floor here in just a minute. Uh, Yona or Jeff, do you have any other comments or things that we've missed along the way that maybe we were going to talk about and haven't otherwise wandered into? I mean, we, we briefly touched on connecting productive places, but Christoph and I have had a, a long discussion over many years uh, about when we do build fixed guideway transit, we need to actually connect places with jobs and connect people to jobs. Because if we're going to make this huge investment in these transportation systems, we should actually do it in a way that actually gets us a return and gets the people that are using it a return. So I think that's just, that's just a big kind of overall big picture thing. If you're going to build a transit line, connect it to the most jobs you possibly can. And those jobs are typically in what you call productive places. I mean, I would add earlier to our streetcar discussion... I think one of the problems with U.S. transit planning is we tend to ask the wrong question a lot of times. That we should always start with what places are we trying to connect and then say what level of service do we need to provide to connect them and then ask what mode will best provide that service. I see way too many transit discussions in the United States that start with a statement something like, all these other cities are building streetcars. We should build a streetcar. I wonder where we could build a streetcar. That's fantastically logical. What do, you, what do you mean? And in my mind, that's a little like starting a home improvement project by saying, I would like to find a way to use my saw. 
I think one thing that we, we sort of alluded to but didn't mention directly is this um, very important issue that I think plagues the entire transit industry, which is that the operations and capital costs are separated. And that yeah. causes infinite numbers of problems related to inadequate service and over-construction. We are able to jump to build expensive new things even as the service that we provide on our regular bus lines is inferior to what we, we should expect. And one of the big reasons for that is that the money that we get is separated into different buckets, and we usually can't trade between them. And I think that's a huge problem. It's my big, big input. So would you suggest, again, that there has to be a connection, a, a, uh, ra- a rational feedback loop between governance and funding uh, so that we don't end up with situations uh, such as uh, what you described, but also as looking at the Twin Cities here where we have a, a confederation of counties uh, who have been given the authority uh, to spend money, uh, but yet the organization that operates the bus uh, being uh, basically uh, under a arm of government, which is completely separate, uh, and basically the only person that connects the two of them is the governor of the state of Minnesota. So uh, in, when in fact, uh, I always joke here in, in Minneapolis, if you're... If you're uh, if you're upset with your bus not running on time or your train uh, being caught in traffic, um, you should you should talk to the governor because uh, you know you're you're on a first name basis with him, uh, and uh, you should you know go check him out because he's the person who points uh, the metro tra- uh, the uh, metropolitan council board, who then oversees uh, and hires the staff uh, who oversees metro transit, uh, who then of course uh, runs your transit system, but your city council person uh, who actually uh, up the food chain and actually more often your county commissioner, your county commissioner uh, who actually actually is on a commission that is a part of a body uh, which collectively as as five to seven counties actually oversees a pot of money given to you by the state legislature you go on and on you realize that these two people these two organizations um, basically have nothing to do with each other and you're like well no wonder we can't actually change anything because essentially uh, we have to elect a new governor uh, and a new legislature in order for us to give our local officials, whether they be a city council person, a mayor, uh, our county commissioners, the authority to actually make any changes whatsoever. Um, at Strong Towns, uh, we see lots of discontinuities um, and broken feedback loops uh, between decision-making processes, and, and we see this to be uh, a similar uh, process where uh, we can't fight for change if we can't actually... Uh, talk to anybody who has the authority to make such change. You know, I think you're right, but I think it's I think it's a really hard hard issue to solve because we want our transit systems to be regional and we want to be able to go between different we want to go from Minneapolis to St. Paul, but we also want to have local control and be able to have some direct input from our city councilor onto the transit system. How do we make those two things work together? I think it's I think it's a very difficult thing to answer. I don't I don't have a solution to that problem. One of the things is you look across the United States and you look at a bunch of different transit governance models and some of them seem to approach what is ideal and they all seem to make bad decisions. So so I, I'm not at all convinced that governance fixes. I think actually having the people who are making the decisions really understand transit is actually a much bigger piece of the solution. There should be a requirement that people on transit boards ride transit. Absolutely. All over the country. Here, here. I mean, even, yeah. Even me, I, I, I sold my car a couple of years ago because I moved to San Francisco and uh, got intimate with the bus system and understood that 
I don't like it when it takes it takes an hour to go three miles, you know. <laughs> but I can talk to my supervisor, but he can't, you know, change what the mayor has to say. And apparently, San Francisco is a really good example of governance, but a really bad example of, of transit. Right? No, I mean it's funny. San Francisco is set up so that one city agency controls all the roads within the city and controls the transit system. And you think that this would lead to really good outcomes. But San Francisco is the place that spent hundreds of millions to upgrade their light rail subway to a computerized automated system that is state-of-the-art. And as soon as those light rail trains leave the subway, the traffic control device at the first intersection is a four-way stop. And this is in a city where the roads department and the transit department are the same department, and somehow they can't figure this out yet. Well, did you know that with the computer system in the subway, you can play Pong on it? (laughs) Well, actually, also this multi-hundred million dollar computer system actually lowered the capacity of the subway, but that's a whole different story. Do you have questions from the audience? Anything percolating out there? Yes, sir. I'll, I'll hand the mic over so you can be appropriately. Let's see. I'm really surprised that we didn't talk at all about uh, public-private partnerships in transit because, you know, the highway system that Chuck is talking about and comparing it to, it doesn't move one person. The highway system's just a road, and nobody's moving on it unless a person buys a car and buys gas and participates in this public-private partnership, just like transit used to be in the past. Developer wanted to build something. They laid down track. They put down a car and they went and built it. It was private with the, with, or the train was up. The, the government would put down the line and it'd have private systems on there. Why aren't we talking at all about using a lot, lot transit authorities putting down lines, putting down the baseline and allowing private systems to fund and run transit instead of some government from France coming over and running it as well. And, and I'm just surprised you didn't mention that at all. And you look at Lyft, and you look at Uber, and you look at these things that are starting to be privatized in different ways, and just thought your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, I'll say, first of all, there is a lot in the United States of sort of outsourcing. Like Metro, we do it. One of our bus garages, every bus out of there is run by a private company. But that's not the same thing as you're suggesting. Um, one of the things about transit systems is the efficiency comes from the system. And England saw this with bus privatization, where they basically open up a city and say three different companies will compete to operate the bus lines. And then they ended up with situations where you couldn't transfer from one bus line to another without paying another fare. They ended up with situations where multiple operators were competing on routes and got really confusing for passengers because there's three buses going to the same place with, you know... There is actually... It's a little bit like the United States actually at one point tried full private competition of the electric system and the telegraph system. And you can look at what there's pictures of what the streets of Manhattan looked like when every building had like three telecom companies running their own wires to it. And what I would say is I think the model, it makes sense for one entity to run all of the service in a meaningful geographic area. Now, I think you could, if our highway funding system wasn't screwed up, actually figure out a model in which the capital investment went into the infrastructure with government investment and then a private operator using fares operated the system. That's how the New York City subway started. But the problem is we've so distorted the finance picture that that doesn't add up. Yeah, I mean, I I would just, I'm not a proponent of of that kind of privatization, but to give you some ammunition, I would simply suggest that um, one model that's worth looking at is the way the London buses are run, 
which is uh, there is a there's an there's a transport entity called Transport for London, and Transport for London is a public agency that's run under the Mayor of London, right? And they have uh, bus services that are divided up into I think into seven groups, and then each group is contracted out to a private operator. In two cases, I think the French government again. In one case, I think the German government. Uh, so, but but nonetheless, it's the same concept. And and the idea is, <laughs> yeah, the idea is you get you get the regulation that you need in a in an effective transit system, and you get the joint fares that you need in a transit system, and you get the network effect. But theoretically, you get the efficiency that you might want out of a private operator. I think too. Just for me. I'm comfortable with the government running a transit system. As long as they're doing the math. A lot of times we get, and we started out this whole conversation with a little talk about equity. I, I get that as an overlay to the system. Uh, but if you're not starting with financial solvency as kind of the base, if, you don't have to operate it like a business, but you have to operate it with business principles and know where you're, you know, know where you're spending your money, know where you're losing money. Uh, understand how one is equaling the other. And if you're not doing that, uh, you know, to me, I, I, I don't care if it's a private or if it's a public. If we're not doing that, it's not going to be around. We just had a highway company uh, in a private, you know, toll road this week file bankruptcy because the, 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 the revenue projections didn't work. Most of our highways would file bankruptcy <laughs> if they were actually done that way. I, I think, you know, having the business principles is a little bit different than privatizing. I would be definitely for the one and, and questionable on the other, you know, maybe if it made sense, but, but not necessarily as a default. So my question is mostly for Christoph. Um, you, with the, I haven't really sunk my teeth into the Houston redesign, but I'm wondering, uh, if you've, if you guys did anything with stop spacing, if it was just, if you retained the, what the, what the stop spacing was before, if you completely redesigned that, and I guess how you would compare that. Um, I don't know how much you know about the Twin Cities geography or our transit system, but our buses stop every block, which is about every 660 feet, I believe, in Minneapolis for the most part, if you're lucky, um, if it doesn't stop twice that. And uh, I know Alex over here wrote an excellent post on Streets MN recently regarding stop spacing, um, and I think it's an issue that uh, probably will become more of, a, more of a hot topic as the Metropolitan Council uh, you know, revises their policies and whatnot. So I guess I'm curious what you have to say about that and the other guys as well. I mean, I would say in most U.S. transit systems, stop spacing is ridiculously short. Um, <laughs> we are, as we implement this, going to try to rationalize some stop spacing, but we are not counting on a significant stop spacing reduction as a significant driver of the plan. I mean, I know we have one place where we have two stops 100 feet apart. We are definitely not going to retain both of those. Um, but I actually think stop spacing is something that's really worth focusing on. The problem is you have to focus on it systematically because if you eliminate one stop, there are a number of people who get a, who who get a significant disadvantage to their trip and a large number of riders who get an entirely insignificant advantage. It's only if you, you go through the entire route so that every rider gets a faster trip, even if they had to walk further, that the math adds up. But I think Jeff probably had a lot to add to this. Well, I will say in San Francisco, there was a guy who wanted to change the stop spacing. And what happened is, when he started looking at the numbers, went through this 
neighborhood called the Tenderloin, which is kind of the most downtrodden neighborhood in the in the San Francisco uh, in the in the forty nine square miles of San Francisco, and the neighborhood started saying, "Well, you're going to take away stops from us. You're this isn't equal to what everybody else wants. This isn't this isn't good for us." It was good for them because it would actually get them to places faster, but they saw it as a negative because it was taking away service from this neighborhood. So it's a very political issue. Every single grandma who walks the quarter mile instead of a half mile to her stop has a, has a voting interest. And she's the one that comes to the city council meeting and she's the one that yells at the, at the supervisors or the city council member, whatever you call them in whatever city. So it is very political and it's very tough to do, even though it has such high benefits. We talked, or you guys talked a lot about funding models and, and streams and, and per, uh, serving productive places with transit. But one, one thing that didn't really come up was uh, construction costs, operating costs. What are the thoughts just across the board? I, you know, I've got my own, but what, if you had to pick like two or three things, you know, we see over in Spain, they can tunnel for the price that we build light rail on, on the service here. You know, what are the things that we can do to help make transit projects, uh, you know, balance out or pencil out on the balance sheet? easier today i think just bird dogging the process it's hard because the engineers are kind of sitting behind a uh you know in in their in their rooms doing their engineering drawings and stuff but uh, one of the things that i've heard that happens is they take the previous project and they just use that as the baseline and then go from there to add whatever they need to to the next one and as a kind of a cost saving measure and so yeah i've heard that and so and this is on streetcar projects on light rail projects um and so figuring out ways to kind of stop that process or at least think about, have help think about how you can, you know, cut costs is kind of a, a win in some form or fashion. Um, this is just, you know, hearsay. I'm not an engineer and I'm not a trained professional in that sense. So I, I think we might actually have to hear from said trained professional since he happens to be next to you. It's funny because an engineer listening to the argument you just made would say that's the opposite of efficiency. You're asking me to stop using the standard approach that I thoroughly developed on the last project for the next one. You're telling me I have to customize each one. And this is where I get back. We're actually asking people to think. That's a really hard thing to do. It's much easier to create the standard plate and just drop it in over and over and over again. And then you get off on the green line and you can't get to the sidewalk. You've got to walk down and wait and do all this because we've standardized the process. So to me, I I have this reflexive reaction against the notion of efficiency because efficiency often when it comes to large capital projects uh, means that we just stop thinking. And the reality is as an engineer, you're supposed to save your client money by thinking let me say that again. Instead of trying to save your client money by standardizing everything, you're supposed to save your client money by thinking and designing it in the most cost-effective way. That's a radical, radical thought. And I know that's what you're suggesting, right? But, you know, that is so far from what we do today. It's, it's bizarre. So, and this is kind of how, you know, when we think about the Portland streetcar, they're actually innovative in the way that they built their track bed because they started thinking about it, right? And so instead of digging the 18 inches that they usually dig for light rail line, they dug, you know, 12 inches and they had a construction process that was actually less intrusive and they did, could do a block a week instead of, you know, closing off a section of, of the road for a certain amount of time. So, there is actually innovation in there that I think that could be followed in other places rather than just, you know, 
plating it the same way as it was before. I'll also add, I think you're, you're exactly right. And that kind of thinking comes from the math that you started this whole thing with, which is saying, if we're going to continue doing what we're doing, uh, it's the 75-year undertaking, which none of us are going to be satisfied with that. That forces you to start thinking differently. And, and there is, you know, I'm not a proponent of the starve the government kind of mantra that you get innovation when you pull the money away. There is, though, an aspect of the, the notion that when the resources are just flowing, we tend to just stay in the rut that we're in. And when we actually have either bigger aspirations uh, or more limited budgets, we tend to get a more, a little bit more resourceful, particularly when you get down a local level. I think your bus thing is a great example of this. We want to provide better service, but we don't have any more money. How do we do it? Well, we've got to step back and, and think, right? Uh, this is a, you know, amazing thing, but we can do it, uh, when we put our minds to it. Well, I, I think I'd add two things. One is, if you look at a transit agency, the operations guys and the safety guys are often part of the problem that we're often over-specifying things. In Houston, we had a case where um, they were proposing a anti-collision system for the light rail trains. This was not to prevent light rail trains from hitting each other at a crossover or a crossing. We already had systems for that. Uh, it was designed to prevent one train from rear-ending the other. So first comment, we have no safety system per- to prevent one bus from rear-ending each other. Like, there is a driver up front, and they have a brake pedal. And a light rail train has an operator up front, and they have a brake pedal. So I don't understand why a light rail train needs a higher margin of safety than a bus does, point number one. But point number two, these trains run six minutes apart. If one's going to hit the back of another, a lot of things have to have gone wrong first. And so I pushed on this long enough that they actually decided to commission the Texas Transportation Institute to do a study on the risk. And they literally did a study and figured out the risk of the collision that this 30-some-odd-million-dollar system was designed to prevent was zero. (laughs) And at that point, we still had a senior staff member recommending we build it. Um, We did not. But, um, But I think as you dig in, you find some of that. But let me point to something else. I think if you look at the budgets of a lot of transit projects in the United States, a lot of that is in transit. In Houston, for example, our new light rail lines, that cost number you see includes rebuilding every single roadway we're running and upgrading every single pipe. So we're taking 30-year-old pavement and 100-year-old pipes and putting in new water pipes and new pavements, and that's called a transit improvement. And furthermore, we're widening streets in order to preserve car capacity, even on streets where the traffic studies have shown that's unnecessary. And that is a transit cost. So if you look at the property acquisition, you look at all the paving, like half the project isn't actually a transit project. So in in Phoenix, they actually reconstructed the street from sidewalk to sidewalk. In Cleveland, in the during the, for the Healthline BRT, they re, the I've been doing a case study on this recently, and the the folks there said it's a fifty year street reconstruction for the whole curb to curb, street to street, all of the all of the things, and some of that came from from the FTA because they were funding the bus project. So that's something that, you know, it gets added on. You know, we talk about transit projects. We compare BRT and LRT and streetcars and the cost and stuff, but they're never really the same. You know, you're never really comparing apples to apples because one's reconstructing a street, one's moving a pipe, one's laying rails, you know, 12 inches deep, one's laying rails 18 inches deep. It's just like this thing that goes on and on. Yeah, I mean, in terms of specific cost items that may be causing this to be a, a big problem, I mean, you compared us to Spanish tunneling. 
In Spain, I think they only need nine people to run a tunneling machine. We need 30. A lot of that has to do with labor demands. Um, I know where you can get a tunneling machine. <laughs> I mean, I hear there might be one available in Seattle if they so can get it out of the tunnel. That's a specific thing. I also know that, uh, you know, we could buy our trains at the international standard and allow, allow our cities to buy our trains if they were built in, in Europe or Asia, but right now we can't do that. Buses too. So that increases costs quite significantly. A third thing that's related to, I think, what you guys were discussing is that, um, we often design our light rail lines, uh, to an engineering degree that's unnecessary to avoid conflicts with cars because of either uh, a fear of, of conflict, uh, you know, accidents or a fear of interfering with car uh, space. So we build overpasses for our light rail trains in places where we should just have them run through the intersection. And that adds a lot of money. Every time you build an overpass or a tunnel, you're adding tons of money. You don't have to do that if you're prioritizing the transit. Engineering, colon, requires thought. Well, uh, oh, we got one more. We'll take one more question. Yes. <laughs> and the question was, does architecture, landscape architecture, and urban, urban design uh, require thought? Um, yes, maybe. Um, here at the University of Minnesota, Tom Fisher is the head of the College of Design. And when the Green Line opened, I mean, this is a person who's well-connected, well-thought-of, brilliant guy. Uh, he had an op-ed in the newspaper saying, nobody designing these things knows anything about pedestrians or knows anything about creating uh, a, a really good space for people to be in when they get on and off. And it, it is really, and you, you struck a chord with me, it's, it's that over-engineering, uh, you know, and a lot of that is the highway engineer's mentality kind of over, you know, imposed on this. Well, and it's also like, I mean, to be honest, it's a lawsuit avoidance mechanism, you know, because it, you have to put like the gates all around the platform yeah. because somebody, an idiot is going to step into the street, you know, it, I mean. I think it's a little bit that. I think often as engineers, we justify the insanity with that defense. Uh, although, if you look at it from a liability standpoint, in, in Minnesota, cities have immunity. As long as you are acting with, you know, uh, some degree of, of defensibility, not just complete negligence, you actually have like a thought out approach, you're immune from lawsuits. It, it is, it, you know, a, we over engineer because it suits our purposes and because uh, we can get the money to do it. And because it reduces a lot of maybe bitching along the way. But at the end of the day, we get an, an overly expensive project that doesn't respond to human needs. And to me, that's some of the nuance that we've lost by turning this over to engineering profession and, and, and really highway dominated kind of thinking. One of the other problems here that we have here is transit agencies themselves. Um, most transit agencies think about the riders only while they are on the vehicle or at the station, not from door to door. Right. And that is a huge problem. And so transit agencies historically, and this is changing dramatically, historically have never really thought about the pedestrian environment around their projects. And, I mean, you still see that attitude. I was at an American Public Transportation Association meeting, and they were talking safety, and I raised my hand and I said, you know, the biggest transit safety issue in the United States is bus riders getting hit by cars after they get off the bus. By far. Nothing else comes close. All of this other stuff we're worried about, nothing comes close. And 
There was a transit person you in that. process that, I'll bet. There yeah. was a transit person in that discussion, and she said, you're so right. Those annoying pedestrians always get in the way of our buses. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... I mean, I joke. God, we gotta, we gotta really, really drive up our car ridership on buses. That would really be helpful to our bottom line. I, I, I mean, I, I really, I, I joke sometimes that if you, that there are transit agencies who think their job is to move a bus down the road. Yeah. And riders are these annoying things that make that job a great deal more difficult. <laughs> and, and that's a really, that's a really, bad, a really problematic attitude. I mean, Houston, before we did reimagining this, at one point, some staff members who aren't there anymore. I, I was talking to the staff about why don't we promote our really great bus lines, Westheimer. We have really frequent service. Westheimer. Why don't Indeed. we promote it? And their answer was, we thought about doing that, but we were afraid too many people would ride it. <laughs> <laughs> and with that seven-lane strode for a bus route, we will come to a close. Well, I want to thank all of our panelists uh, for a fantastic conversation. One of the gentlemen who had to just step out ahead of time said this should have been a part of the conference. Uh, we will lobby for such things. Uh, no, actually, we won't. We, we'll just stay out here in the public plaza where it's lovely, where we don't have to sit in stuffy hotel rooms, and we'll talk about transit in the public realm uh, because that's really where it should be. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, we'll hopefully have this up where you can share it with friends who, who didn't make it, and uh, thanks so much for joining uh, Strong Towns and look forward to your comments and uh, your sign sheet. Hopefully, if anyone came in later on to get the sign sheet, please do, and we'll keep you informed about uh, moving these principles and ideas we talked about today forward. Thanks again. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah. children by teaching them what the economy is now. We teach them about economics by giving them piggy banks that they can put their money in and then it'll be there for them whenever they need it. That is no longer how the system works. If we really want to prepare them for the world they're about to inherit, we need to give them talking piggy banks that they can put their money in, walk away from, and then return to to have the piggy look up at them and say, I've got good news and bad news. <laughs> the bad news is, all your money is gone. Me and the other piggies from the surrounding area pulled our money together for a series of calamitous investments. 
around some very complicated credit default swaps. It was derivative stuff. I haven't got time to explain it to you now. The good news is, I'm fine.